What a week. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm joined by my co-host David Figler and contributor Andrew Corrali, publisher of The TheList.Vegas. And we're getting into the week of news. We'll be talking about the Huntridge Theater's revival, the never-ending Tony Shea saga, and whether Clark County should okay an apartment rooftop beer garden. It's Friday, April 7th. I'm Vogue Robinson, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Good morning, David. Good morning, Andrew. How are y'all? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How are y'all doing? Excellent. Very excited. Happy spring. Friday, Friday. I mean, do you need to say more? Friday. Friday in <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> only for some. Only for some. True. So speaking of Fridays, and I'm sure probably some of your weekends were, were spent at this lovely location, but let's talk about the Huntridge Theater relighting tonight. Andrew, give us the backstory on the Huntridge Theater. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So tonight, 530, they are relighting the sign and marquee at the historic Huntridge Theater. They're turning it into, you know, kind of a big event. They're going to have three live bands, some food trucks and a really cool photo exhibit in the lobby of 90s era punk show photos, uh, many of them from the Huntridge by longtime local photographer uh, Mike Hill. I've seen the photos. They're just surging with like youthful energy. The meta sort of mood around this um, event is, you know, this is sort of kicking off the long-term renovation of the Huntridge, which uh, was purchased by Jay Dapper, commercial real estate developer, in March of 2021. And the grand plan is to renovate it, refurbish it, and add on to it um, with an opening date probably 2024. The renovation's got a $22 million price tag. Um, I guess the big question is, you know, is it for real this time? Is it or really is gonna this, happen? Uh, are we just being, is this Lucy's football where we're gearing up to, <laughs> you know, kick it again, only for it to be swiped away as it as it has in the past? Oh, good grief. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so there's a lot of conversation about the hope and despair of the Huntridge Theater. You know, it has a, a very long and rich and troubled history. It was sort of had to be pulled out of this legal and financial limbo to to get it in a place where it could actually you know be redeveloped um question is is jay dapper the person to do it i'm actually pretty optimistic um for for various reasons jay dapper has a shocking history of actually doing what he says he's going to do so that's kind of a point in his favor um he's a native who actually went to huntridge theater shows back in the day so mm -hmm. i feel like he's got you know that extra emotional oomph that um, will entail some some personal um, investment, and um, yeah, and he's a commercial real estate developer, so he probably you know knows a thing or two about redeveloping properties. So count me as uh, optimistic and hopeful. Um, what do, what do you guys think? Well, you know, I I also am gonna file myself under hopeful and optimistic. Jabe Dapper is a developer who's been doing a lot of projects in the downtown area, although he's been doing a lot of projects all over the valley and mm -hmm. it might be stretched a little thin. Um, some of Jay Dapper projects go really quick. Some seem to linger for a long time. Huntridge probably in that latter category. 
uh, the Huntridge has a, a, a lot of history in this community. And for people who are new to the community or newer to the community, it would probably shock them how far back it goes. You know, it starts in uh, wartime, <laughs> 1940s. Yeah. Uh, it opened up as, you know, just one of those famed movie palaces. Uh, it was very ornate inside and out. It was a big deal, especially when there was such a small population. Over the years, it took a lot of different twists and turns. It was one of the first places where they desegregated for viewers of the movies that were there. And so way before Las Vegas kind of came on, which was, as listeners to the podcast will know, came very late in the civil rights movement, the Hundreds Theater kind of stood alone on that. They've been through a lot of different hands. I recall going there in the early 70s, uh, watching wow. kiddie shows, movies of the day. I think I saw Escape from Witch Mountain there or something yes! like that. Yeah. And then kind of went through a down period, uh, resurged in the early 90s with the Lenz family, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, and became kind of a haven for a lot of music shows. I think Andrew's band played there, too, or Andrew definitely went to a lot of shows there. I remember seeing him there a lot. Uh, and then the roof Andrew, caved you had in. a band? I saw, saw David in the pit. In the pit. <laughs> in the pit. Yeah, um, Tridge to a whole generation of Las Vegans. It is, you know, known yeah. and beloved for its tenure in the 90s as indie, punk, rock, central. And one interesting thing to me is that there are actually going to be four venues inside the refurbished Huntridge. So, so the vision is to have, you know, the main theater and then um, an off-Broadway space and then two other small programming spaces, which are going to be built on. So a total of four venues, which to me is a lot of space to program. Uh, and Vogue, you know, I mean, you're, you're a performer, you're, you're a poet and you're an artist. You know, what do you want to see happening at the Huntridge in its new era? Hmm. And what I love, too, is that there's already going to be there's talk of an art gallery in that space. So he's going to use some of the the old like the signage and other things like that to really be part of what brings you into the space and gives you that understanding that there's uh, love for the history, love for the building, love for the community. Mm -hmm. So, boom, that's already checked. And I think when I think about shows, I think it's hard to say. I think. He should stay in the vein of asking the like ask the community what they want to see. But I think if it brings back that that punk feel, uh, especially simultaneously as we're getting the punk rock museum, I think that'll be a really great like springboard. That's easy marketing. And then I think you know I mean I want poetry everywhere. <laughs> that's just that's just the wrong with my that. feelings. And I think they're going to emphasize a lot of theater, live theater. Yeah. They have uh, some programming coming from a company that has some roots in New York. Yeah, Soho Playhouse. Mm -hmm. yep. So we'll see what they what they can do in the scene. Yeah, whatever they program, I'm starting a mosh pit no matter what. There you go. I noticed that they said, oh, you know, that they're they're going to be the, one of the only ones to have off off Broadway theater, and I was like, is that is that true? Do I not understand the definition of off-Broadway theater, David? Yeah, I think that's a Lucy definition. But okay. you know, look, any new programming is great, and I'm going to not drop this pun. Uh, homage pit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, do you do yoga? Because that's a bit of a stretch. Ooh, Oof. moving on. So I know y'all are both <laughs> veterans of that downtown punk music scene. I guess like in a one sentimental memory or one, one sentimental thought around the Huntridge. Like what did the original Huntridge mean to Vegas and one way that they can continue kind of paying homage to, to what that space means? What do y'all think? For me, it was a beacon of all ages entertainment in a town that was, you know, built for adults. So when we started going in the 90s, you know, it was a welcoming space where it was no muss, no fuss, 
just a no frills punk rock venue where you could, you know, just see some amazing bands in this, you know, crusty old theater. So I have some, you know, <laughs> countless, you know, countless memories of great shows. One of my favorites, I saw uh, Sonic Youth there in 93. At the time, I thought I was having sort of like this, you know, mind melting religious experience. I was probably mm. just like, you know, losing my hearing, but just being <laughs> scoured in that transcendent guitar noise was always, uh, you know, a wonderful thing to occur at the Huntridge Theater. One of my my first band appearances of the the mighty but instantly forgettable Tippy Elvis band was that we did play a Huntridge benefit show. And there were a lot of benefit shows that occurred yeah. at the Huntridge during that time. I actually have one really fun memory in the nooks and crannies. We went to backstage to see a, a show called Bob Log, who is a great indie performer. My friends were very excited to meet Bob Log. And uh, his drummer at the time was somebody many years earlier was a resident at my dorm where I was the RA and I had him kicked out for uh, misbehavior. And huh. we walked in and he was just like, you dick! <laughs> it was the best. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Uh, the, the Huntridge has lots of great, great memories. It'll be interesting. And, you know, being in that old Huntridge neighborhood and right across from the troublesome and problematic uh, Circle Park, which the neighbors have been like dealing with for a really long time. It'll be interesting if that has a positive impact mm. to get that green space back going in downtown Las Vegas, too. Yeah, I love that. And I think you guys really hit the hit the nail on the head for what I really hope for and what the city really needs is comfortable space that is, fingers crossed, safe <laughs> and the loose, loose mm. language around safe. But for for younger people for all ages to really go and enjoy themselves, there aren't enough. There aren't enough spaces. So I hope that that, that part of the tradition definitely stays. So thanks for sharing you guys' stories. And here's hope that the roof doesn't cave in again. Oh <laughs> my God. Like, ever. 1995. <laughs> oh, if you don't know about the roof cave in, you, listeners, please just Google how the Huntridge closed. Yeah. If you know, you know. So let's let's shift gears. Let's go into the next subject of the day. Tony Shea's father has filed a lawsuit against former associates. So, oh, money. Uh, the, the, the arguments around this man's money uh, and properties is ongoing. So, David, can you fill us in? Yeah. I mean, lawsuits, nothing more effective to shine a light on mythology. That's for sure. And this mm -hmm. is yet another chapter a lot of watchers on this one have been waiting for this particular part of the litigation to occur. We've seen in the past a lot of people, and when I say a lot of people, <laughs> I mean a lot of people, dozens of people who say that Tony Shea owed them money based on mm -hmm. scribblings on post-it notes. On a post-it note. Yeah, stuff mm -hmm. like that. The biggest one to date was uh, Tony Shea's assistant. Uh, she had sued the estate for... Uh, millions and millions of dollars, I think like seven, eight, nine million dollars, something Ooh. like that. She wound up having to pay the estate in the end over half a million dollars. Uno reverse card right there. Yeah, uh. yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, which sometimes litigation does. But a lot of people have been saying, well, that was kind of chump change versus the, the people who ma made the most money being associated with Tony Shea, arguably, uh, which were the head of his development wing and his attorney. And so now the the lawsuit has kind of focused uh, by the Shea family onto two people, Andrew Donner 
and Pui Premsroot, who we all just call Pui in, in the legal world. Both of them now are kind of under fire. Pui had sued the estate for what she said were owed legal fees and other things of that nature. Uh, Donner had kind of like faded into the background, but now both are back at the forefront. And the allegation is that Tony Shea paid $30 million more than the actual value of the Zappos headquarters. So he paid $70 million to Andrew Donner, who bought that building not terribly long ago from the city for $18 million. Donner made $52 million on it, and Tony Shea not only put what reportedly was $40 million into it in improvements, but had been paying outrageous rent for almost 10 years on it. So Donner came away with probably $100 million off that tra one transaction. That's what this litigation is all about. Underlying all that, of course, is the issue of what was Tony Shea's mental condition at the time of that transaction, uh, because now a picture is circulating. It's not a nice picture. Uh, it's actually quite disturbing, showing a very mm -hmm. emaciated uh, Tony Shea with drug paraphernalia for nitrous oxide in his hands, looking extraordinarily gaunt, underweight, like I said, emaciated. Uh, and that, his family is saying, was his condition when he was entering into these contracts for tens of millions of dollars. And the family saying it should all be undone. So a lot of money, a lot of drama. And now a lot of light being shown on what was really going on, not just at the end of the whole Tony Shea adventure in Las Vegas, but maybe even back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. I recently finished Happy at Any Cost, the uh, book about Tony by uh, Kirsten Grind and uh, Catherine Sayre. And the Park City chapters are heartbreaking for the web of greed that just kind of coalesced around him. And it's like, who is advocating for Tony in this, you know, clearly a state of substance, you know, addiction, some mental health issues. So I'm wondering how many more shoes are going to are going to drop in this. You know, it does, Andrew, really make us look back at the entire time of the really relatively short period when the downtown project was doing lots of stuff in the downtown area. Vogue, I'm I'm curious as to your take, because, you know, like I started saying, there's a lot of mythology here. What was your understanding of what was going on in downtown during the heyday of the, the Tony Shea era? Oh, Lord. There's so many things, David. Before I answer your question... <laughs> I feel very I feel very politician-y. Before I answer your question, <laughs> I, I just want to note that that Tony Shea didn't leave a will and he didn't have like a trust. And mm. it doesn't make sense to me to be a person who amasses that much wealth and to not have a plan for where it goes, regardless of whether or not you have a partner or children, taking those steps and moving forward. And even for anybody, if you have X amount yeah. of wealth and yeah. the capacity to do so, you know, talk to a lawyer because I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but think about a living trust. Anytime someone passes away, the long legal battle that that happens, that long probate court is so taxing. It's so emotionally taxing on people. And I, I feel like I don't know how much the family gets to grieve. And I know it's been two years, but I'm just like, when do you get to put all of this away and move forward? Um, yeah. And so well, that and, sucks. And what they wind up having to do is exactly what's happening here is that they now look back. And of course, they're focusing on the last few transactions when his mental health really did and physical health really yeah. did seem to be, 
you know, uh, at that point of extreme vulnerability by all accounts. I mean, like I was at, you know, Project Happiness stuff. Like I spoke at one of those events inside the container park uh, and we used to hold slams inside the container park as well. They let us use that space for free. You know, I, I watched people's I read people's testimonies about their friendships with him and how he changed their lives. And so it feels like he was this larger than life person. And at the same time, we never got the other side of it where where was the pain and why is this happiness project a thing? And it's because probably there's so much pain inside. But, you know, I never knew about his his friends and family, like who who was close to him, who were his friends versus who's just there to take shots. And it feels like the saga never really ends. Like all of us are really all up in <laughs> Tony Shea's business. And that photo, I'm not really happy about that photo circulating. But David, do you think that there are any lessons that we as a city should learn from it? I do. I don't think we will. But this whole concept of this kind of Willy Wonka figure who wanted to make an urban Burning Man downtown Mm. and was able, because he had so much money, engage in this sort of whimsical uh, activity to, you know, reinvent downtown is belied by the fact that there is a business that was operating behind it. And that goes right back to this litigation now. People often will talk, oh, we invested $350 million into downtown to make it great and wonderful and magical. Well, really, you know, $200 million of that was a real estate portfolio, which was run by this guy, Andrew Donner. And they bought up hundreds of properties, a thousand apartments, a thousand hotel motel units in the small downtown space, displacing thousands of people, while Andrew Donner was accountable to no one except for Tony Shea. And and the answer to your question, Vogue, real easily is that, you know, a a magical let's turn downtown Las Vegas into Burning Man uh, doesn't always accord with basic, thoughtful planning 101 for a city. It is a big lesson for the city to, you know, rely on a savior, to go that direction, to not look at the business transactions behind it, because there's always going to be people trying to make money. And now this lawsuit is going to perhaps, again, bust the myth of what was really happening at the time. And I hope and pray that city leaders, many of whom are still around and were involved in all of this, do learn the lessons and that we don't make these mistakes again. And again, whatever happened to the people who were in those thousands of apartments, all those hotel motel units who were borderline security for housing and food, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, is there a connection with the upsurge of homelessness in the downtown mm-hmm. area? These are things that need to be explored and discussed one way or another. And, you know, we shouldn't be sidetracked by the... <sighs> By, by the, the theater of these type of yeah. things and the horrible, sad photos that we're seeing. But it is important for the city to be able to move on. Let's talk about parties in other inappropriate places, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> nice transition. I like that. Why, thank uh, you. <laughs> I need a beer right now. Uh, you know, well, you can have one on top of the rooftops if this shit goes through, David. So <laughs> the county commission is considering having some beer gardens at apartment complexes, specifically off of Russell and 215. So where all those really nice, 
nice apartment complexes are like, I, I won't name names. But either way, offer Russell in 215. So they want to have, they applied. They're like, uh, can we get a beer garden? We want it to be exclusive to just people who live here. So, you know, it's like, hey, move to our apartment complex. You get a gym, you get a pool, and you get a beer garden on top of the roof for you and your friends only. Uh, and it's it's not far-fetched when you think about, okay, it's near some shops, it's fancy schmancy, and it's it's wrapped into the amenities. But the Clark County Commissioner, and he's also, I didn't know this, but William McCurdy is also the Liquor and Gaming Board Chairman. So he's working multiple spaces, but it says there's more to discuss. We can't just have apartment complexes running bars. We must have separation. <laughs> Commissioner Marilyn Kirkpatrick says that if one apartment complex can do it, so say in one area, then what about the rest of the apartment complexes? What about people in her district and all the other districts? So saying, you know, we can't say, oh, only some housing zone spaces are allowed to turn their roofs into bars. If it's going to be one, then everybody should have the right to. She's saying it's setting precedent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, yeah, the question for you two, rapid fire, what are you, let's do yay or nay votes. David, yay or nay? Uh, I'm going to go yay. Okay, Andrew, yay or nay? A loud beer drunken, yay. Oh my God, what is wrong with you guys? Vote, yay or nay? Mm, what about mm, you? Mm, with amendments. <laughs> <laughs> yay asterisk, yay yeah, asterisk, or, or nay with amendments? Uh, nay, 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 yay with amendments. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yay-ish, yay-ish. Yeah. I have asterisks too, um, but I guess uh, on sort of broad principle, I just like the idea of mixing things up a little bit and introducing a bit of more modern, you know, or maybe, you know, not so modern urban huh. thinking into the way we talk about, you know, zoning in the valley. You know, Vegas is pretty much like a, you know, car-based post-war city where everything is zoned by, you know, big swaths, right? You got your residential, you got your commercial, you got your industrial. Hmm. So I like the idea of, you know, mixing that up a little bit. This sounds like it could be, you know, reasonably done, arguably safer. You know, people aren't driving to the bar, right? But it's within walking distance. Obviously, you'd have to account for kids and, you know, the hour operating hours and things like that. But um, I love the idea. And, you know, I hope they at least have a healthy discussion about it. Yeah, noise and all that stuff too. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm much more in favor of it for it being from the from the get-go so everyone who moves in knows that's what they're moving into because mm -hmm. there might be some people who don't want that to happen in their place because it might interfere with their quiet enjoyment of their residential area, but generally speaking, sure, why not? All the points everyone makes seems to make sense. I mean, it's, you know, as long as they've got good bumper guards up on the rooftop so right. it's falling <laughs> off, you know, quick quick and easy stumble back to their apartment and we don't have to worry about people on the road that condition. So um, I think it's innovative, it's interesting, and it actually opens up a broader conversation about what we call mixed use. Exactly. Yeah. And beer is so good now. It's just gotten really good over the last like 15 years. <laughs> I just, and I, oh, well, you know, I guess that is a, an interesting point. Like if it's just beer, sometimes it's not as bad as like, you know, giving a hard, but I feel like they, they don't want just beer. I don't know what the, the parameters for the, the gardens are, but I think, you know. I like want in, an immersive tequila experience <laughs> oh right boy. in my driveway. <laughs> Shake me up. <laughs> Put salt on me. Good Lord. So I, I, 
I imagine, like I think about as a kid, like going to house parties, right? Like walking down the street, somebody's house is is the party house and they are always having a gathering. And those were fun. And those were probably the safest parties I went to. Like they were better than clubs (laughs) being in somebody's home. But I'm also just like, there are some neighborhoods where I don't think it would work. I think especially if it's like people who say you have, you know, my spouse works East Coast time. So, mm-mm. you know, like if it's if it's loud and, and extra turnt and there's a whole gathering happening above our, our home, then that that wouldn't work for us. So I think, yeah, David, I think your solution, your idea about people need to know beforehand as opposed to opening it up later. That's the thing. And I think there's something to be said about leaving leaving home and going out, you know, to go to something as opposed to everything is there. You're you're in your little zone and you never leave if the bar is just upstairs. When do you meet new people? But also, I guess it lets you meet your neighbors. Do you all feel like we need more mixed use apartment complexes like these with like eateries and entertainment, all that stuff just built in in the valley? Yeah, to me, it just makes, you know, good common sense. I think one factor that's important to kind of keep in mind is that this beer, this beer garden proposal most importantly, it sounds like it's intended to serve, you know, the immediate community, the apartment community, you know, that that's living there. I think the conversation turns a little bit if you have like if a, you know, the house next door converted to like a, you know, a PT's pub or something and all of a sudden I'm dealing with major, you know, traffic and people coming from outside the neighborhood and getting wasted. I think there's a way to kind of, you know, position these kind of mixed use ideas so they're actually serving the immediate neighborhood, presumably, Mm -hmm. you know, cutting down on on traffic, encouraging people to walk or commute a short distance. So I think, you know, the the sort of community service principle is uh, is important to me as far as, you know, making this making this a reality. And when you and I were walking through the Arts District recently, Vogue, we saw some of this, you know, proof of concept that there can be a nice blend and mix. And it does add to those things like walkability. I'm always for any kind of thoughtful development, zoning, tweaking, et cetera, that makes sense for our community and stuff that's less car-centric. I mean, I'd much rather see housing with retail on the on the first level than a car wash or a strip mall with a thousand parking spots uh, or any of the other sort of in and out, no, nothing against our friends at the, at the drive-through industry, but, you know, stuff where cars are coming and going constantly mm-hmm. when we should be encouraging people to take ownership and stewardship of their neighborhoods and walk and bike and be healthy and like less reliant on car culture and more invested in building a place to to be right mm-hmm. with with your neighbors that's inclusive and interesting and diverse and mixed use uh, developments absolutely are a key part of that puzzle. Mm. Amen. Yeah. And I think I like it as a, a ground level. I don't know why I don't like it on the roof, but but I, the flip doesn't work for me. Like I could deal with the the bar underneath, but I think above something about that is like disruptive. And I also am worried about people falling. Beer, beer and heights. Yeah, it's an innovative combo. But could you like, <laughs> could you imagine though, I, I thought about this, like what if like just a random house on, on my street, what if it was operated as like a little coffee shop? Yeah. that, you know, serve the immediate. So, you, you know, you're not dealing with like the beer and the alcohol kind of stuff. But I thought like, that's not an outrageous idea if it, you know, especially focused on people in the neighborhood, encouraging them to walk and, and interact. And that could like, you know, just add something really cool to the the sort of, you know, generally suburban texture of, of Las Vegas. Mm. 
just has to be done right and has to be done thoughtfully and it has to be somewhat consistent. And I think uh, especially in downtown Las Vegas, they're having these conversations. But, yeah, it is important to do all over the valley uh, to find those right equations. Uh, it's not as easy as you think. We can't throw zoning out the window. Uh, <laughs> we do want to support some of these, you know, cottage type industries to be able to maybe operate a little closer to the residential areas. And so we'll see kind of how they fit that balance out as we move forward in all parts of the valley. Yeah. So, David and Andrew, this has been lovely. I feel like I learned so many things. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Always. Thank you. Emotional roller coaster, but I'm glad we made it back to the station. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Good talking yeah. with you, too. Yeah, let's go drink beer on the roof. <laughs> and, on, and, and on the first floor, too. Downstairs, yeah. y'all. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson. Our producer is Layla Muhammad. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets. And our hosts are David Figler and myself, Vogue Robinson. Music is by OG Moose, All the Kimonos, and Epidemic Sound. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the Nuwuvi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Take care.